Welcome to On the Edge of Equity, where every episode features crucial conversations centered on equity, diversity, and inclusion. But this isn't just talking the talk. It's about inspiring action, asking tough questions, and getting honest answers. Because that's the only way that real change happens. Welcome to On the Edge of Equity podcast. Today, I am so excited because it's my absolute privilege and honor to host Dr. Howard Fuller, who is an activist, an educator, a reformer for really what I hope will be a powerful conversation about his transformational work. Doc, it's such a blessing to have you here with me for so many reasons um, that I wanted to have this inaugural podcast conversation with you. I've known you for many, many years. Again, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tammy. It's really an honor. I'm all hyped because I'm your first, <laughs> your first one, so I can't mess it up, right? So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, you are not, and I am beyond <laughs> thrilled that you have had just such a powerful impact on my life. I consider you a mentor, a friend, somebody who has had great influence, and um, we'll talk about some other possibilities in terms of our paths crossing and how you've had an impact. As I share with you in our conversation before that we've been talking around these issues of equity, we've been talking about over the years, and you know this better, I think, than I do about how we have an impact on this planet. And I'm just going to ask you, like, what's top of mind for you right now? Like, what are you thinking about? What are you working on as it relates to equity in this community? Let our listeners know what's top of mind. Yeah, you know, thanks for that question. I mean, there are several things. As you know, the main thing is what's happening at Dr. Howard Fuller Collegiate Academy in several different ways. First and foremost, I'm just concerned about our students. And these three years, almost three years, people really have to understand the impact that this has had on our students, our families, our teachers, <laughs> everyone. And sometimes I think that we begin to talk about these things in like an abstract way. You know, at a certain point, oh, yeah, there was COVID and then we move on. You can't just move on because the impact on our kids has been just extraordinary. I mean, if you think about it, Tammy, we have ninth graders who were never really in the seventh and eighth grade. Mm. We've got 10th graders who were never in the eighth and ninth grade, right? Realistically speaking, a lot of these kids for two years have not been in school. And you can't say that and then just move on. I mean, you got to say that and say, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What does it mean for these kids? What does it mean for the teachers? You're in situations where the pressure on people is unlike anything that I have ever seen in my life. You have teachers who walk in and just quit. They literally can't do it. You have kids who've gone through things that are even hard to describe. Mm. But yet, we have a goal, and the goal is to give them the best education possible. So always at the top of my mind is no matter what it is that has happened, what is it that we're going to do? How is it that we're going to ensure that these young people who are in our care, that they get the best education possible? So at the top of my mind is how are we going to overcome 
all of these obstacles that we're currently facing. And I think there's some specific things we can talk about if you would like. So at the top of my mind is that also related to the school is, as you know, we're trying to do something that has never been done in the city of Milwaukee that I'm aware of. And that is for a board that is controlled by black people, that is an independent charter school, not connected to a church or any other organization, to build a brand new high school uh, for our students. Because I believe that our students deserve better than what we're able to give them from a facility standpoint. And so we've been very fortunate to have the leadership of Corey Nettles, uh, Thelma Sias, and Patty Godoran to head up our campaign committee. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is just what it is that's happening nationally, right? We have a political environment unlike anything that I've ever seen. I I mean, I think the last four or five years or, or more, the level of polarization that exists in our body politic is different. It isn't different like it's never happened before in America. I mean, if you study history, you know, like I see like the period right after Lincoln was assassinated and Johnson took over as president. You know, I saw the Trump presidency, frankly, equating that period. And the difference was Johnson didn't have Twitter and Snapchat and Fox News and whatever. So, you know, I kind of understand how to look at this period. But even if you know about the history of this country, each historical period where something occurs is different. Even though history may repeat itself, it doesn't repeat itself under the same historical conditions. Mm -hmm. So the issues that you're facing, the issues that London is going to face, the issue that the young people who are in our school today, those issues, they may come from the same foundation of racism and economic oppression, but they're going to manifest themselves different. (laughs) And so therefore, they're going to require different strategies. You know, they're going to require a different way of thinking. So those are the things that right now, you know, I'm thinking a lot about. And I mean, and those are, I think, all critical issues that I want to go in so many different directions. But I want to ask you about, you know, this beautiful place that you have lifted. Howard Fuller Collegiate Academy in Milwaukee is one of those places that you've talked about how you are literally changing the narrative when it comes to how we educate our children. But also, as we think about the opportunities around leadership within that building and what you've been able to do, how has this work of equity truly been centered in your life's mission and work? I mean, you've talked extensively now about the school. What else can you share, you know, in terms of how this this has really been an influence of how you've shown up, frankly, in your leadership? Yeah, well, the first thing honestly, Tammy, was to understand the difference between equality and equity. I think equity is one of those terms that gets thrown around, and there's an assumption that we all (laughs) have the same understanding of what it means. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to get people to see is that equity says that I'm going to make sure that you have all the resources that you need to be successful. Yes. Equality says we're going to make sure that everyone has equal resources. Well, if everyone has equal resources, but we don't start from the same base, Mm. 
talk to me about equality is not enough. And I believe that a lot of people are not prepared to talk about equity. They're not prepared to say, we understand that because of historical circumstances, because of contemporary circumstances, there's a group of people in our community that if they're going to do better, they've got to have more. Mm. It's not enough to say, I'm just going to give you what everyone else has. Because as I said, we don't start from the same problem base Mm -hmm. or from the same set of circumstances. So it's very clear to me, for example, that the kids at our school, the vast majority of kids at our school, that this country writ large don't care about them. And I know people get all (laughs) all upset. Oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, what I mean is what I said, is that these children are not a primary base of concern. And therefore, those of us who really care about them have to fight every single day for them to get their due. But when you're fighting in an environment where the people who are in power really don't care about those kids. Not that they don't talk about them. You can talk about something. The question is, though, do you care deeply? And if you care deeply, mm-hmm. then you wouldn't have the circumstances that you see with these kids. So to try to make this real specific, it's really interesting how when COVID hit, all of a sudden people who used to be low-wage workers, hmm. they became essential workers. We just changed the terminology. Right. We didn't change their health care. We didn't change how much they're getting paid. And what we told them to do is go out there and risk your life so the rest of us can be on Zoom. And that's real, right? And and so now all of a sudden, particularly when you're in a high school, there are a number of our young people who have become essential workers for their families. And so while you're talking to them about the importance of going to college, they're talking about, I need to get a job at Amazon. I need to get a job at Burger King. Wherever it is, I need to get a job. Because not only is this job to help me get sneakers, this job is to help put food on the table in our house, you know, because families have lost jobs and and, and so forth. You can't talk about equity with those children without understanding the conditions Mm. that they're facing and without understanding that while COVID may have had an impact On some of us, I mean, from a health standpoint, for those of us who have resources, who have money, the impact was not the same. Mm -hmm. So when people say, oh, we're all in this together, that's bogus. No, we weren't all in this together. Some of us were in it at one level. Some of us were in it at another level. And for many of the kids that we serve and their families, COVID was devastating, Mm -hmm. not only from the standpoint of their not being in school, and we can talk about some of the problems with virtual learning and all of that, but just from the the, the standpoint of what was already a horrible situation for them when it came to health care, when it came to housing, when it came to the minimum wage, when it came to violence, all of those things were exacerbated during COVID. And I'll, I'll say this and I'll stop, is that You know, when I look at what it is that's happening in our community, the violence and some of those things, I keep trying to encourage people, particularly people from the black community, to not racialize economic oppression. Mm. And what I mean by that is I never use terms like black on black crime. What there is is crime. (laughs) And that what happens is if you put people in circumstances that are not fit for human beings, they're going to respond 
in ways that reflect the conditions under which they're living. Mm -hmm. And so historically, many, many black people, for a whole variety of different reasons, have existed in circumstances that to me are are basically inhumane. Mm. And so what happens is there's a dialectical relationship between something that actually happens and then what happens with the culture over time. So that if you're consistently put in a position where you don't have food, you don't have clothing, you don't have this, you don't have that, and you start responding in all kinds of ways, over a period of time, that gets embedded mm. in the culture of a people, right? And so what then happens is you blame the culture as opposed to understanding what is really the fundamental roots that cause the cultural change. And so we then start coming up with cultural responses to something whose foundation is not in the culture. Mm. You know, so it's just, it's just how these things feed off of each other and the importance of us trying to be clear on what's actually happening, because if we're not clear on what's actually happening, the solutions that we come up with will not be solutions that address the fundamental problem. It will address the manifestations mm. of the problem, but not, but the, not the problem itself. Doc, you are speaking truth to power. And I think what you are talking about, the systemic challenges that we often think get fixed in, you know, whether it is institutional or within our organizations, we're thinking we're manifesting change with great intentions, like the desire for change is there, the desire to do good is there, but not really getting to the root. And when I think about, as you started this conversation off talking about, you know, the difference between equity and equality, in my mind, equity is the destination. And I don't know if we're going to ever see that realized in our lifetime, but I, I want you to speak to this idea of how we have often often addressed, uh, continue on that path, we address these challenges that exist in our community with a program or an initiative or this thing that we do over here. How do we get to the heart of real change, which is really at the root of all of the challenges we're facing? Yeah, that is the question, right? I mean, and then really what constitutes real change? Yeah. So for example, I celebrate the fact that there's a, a black mayor or you know, I don't, I don't know him. I celebrate the fact that there's a black county exec who I do know. Mm-hmm. I've been knowing David since he was in high school. But, but what I want people to be clear about is simply putting a black face in a chair that white people used to sit in. Mm. And all you're going to do is alter the race of the person sitting in the chair. <laughs> but you're not going to alter what's beneath the chair. So in other words, it won't matter that somebody... Is black. I mean, the same thing applied to me when I was superintendent. Yeah, it's all nice and everything, but what I realized was that I was in charge, but I wasn't in control. Hmm. And the fundamental things that needed to happen, I really could not make happen, right? And so what happens, what is going to happen, I think, and we need to be careful about, is that if someone black gets in a position and then all of a sudden you don't see real change take place— then a certain amount of cynicism develops around, well, what difference does it make to elect a black person? But at the same time, it's, it's like understanding what it means to take over something 
that you don't have the power hmm. to change in and of itself. I mean, there's still black people who are mad at Obama because they had to pay their rent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like <laughs> the fact that he got in there, then you, you no longer have to pay your rent. And then the limitations of his capacity to make change. And so what I'm trying to get at is that if you take over a city and that city has no economic base, Mm. or you have a declining economic base. A dude named William Julius Wilson wrote a book years ago called The Declining Significance of Race. And he made the argument that black people were going to become mayors at the point in time that they have no economic base from which to deal with the problems that they're facing, Mm. right? So when you said, well, how can you make change? Well, you can't make change if we say, there will be no jobs or the, the jobs that are going to be available to you are jobs that either don't pay enough for you to take care of your family or they're going to be jobs that are out of your reach mm-hmm. because you don't have the education, you don't have the experience or whatever. So then you have to say, okay, if we're going to talk about systemic change, right. we have to understand what constitutes the system mm. so that when I teach that, In sociological terms, I'm like, okay, when you say a system in a society is made up of the various institutions, you know, the family, economics, uh, education, uh, religion, you break it up into its parts, and then you show the interrelationships. That is really what constitutes the system, right? So then the question becomes, if I'm going to change that system, what are the catalytic entities that have to be fundamentally changed. Hmm. So if we know that without money, <laughs> it's like people tell me all the time, how you, you can't end poverty by throwing money at it. Well, actually, that is the way you end poverty. <laughs> and and that, that if you look at the research, the programs that actually work long term to impact poverty are those that give people cash. Hmm. And so you'd have to say, okay, what changes have to be made in the economic structure in order for people to have a chance to have a better life? What changes then have to be made in the educational structure so that the changes that you make in the economic structure, that they have an impact? So that's how you have to look at systemic change. And merely creating new programs that don't change the fundamentals or just changing the faces Mm. of the people, it doesn't lead to systemic change. I'm not saying it doesn't lead to any changes that are significant. Because I do think that even if you get in a position where you don't have all the authority in the world, there are certain things that you can do if you're committed to doing it. But you also have to be willing to not have that job. In other words, you have to be willing to make decisions that may mean you're done. Because that's not what people wanted you to do, the people who, who hold the power. Yeah. So I don't want this to be confusing because, because I think the whole idea of systemic change is a very, very difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't fool ourselves. In, in other words, let's admit <laughs> that, no, we are not going to 
get real systemic change. Right. That I'm looking at what I can do. Sure. And I don't see that what I can do will lead to real systemic change. It's, it's almost like people will ask me, well, Howard, you're, you're a pessimist, right? <laughs> and I am because I don't, I don't see a whole lot to be optimistic about. But well, the we'll di- say realist. Yeah, but, you know, the difference to me, you know, Tommy, is that it's like, for example, I, I believe that racism is fundamental to American society. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that it's tangential. Right. And I've learned this from studying Derek Bell and particularly reading his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. And so you wake up every day and you say, "Okay, Howard, if you don't think this can be changed, then why do you fight? And what I say is you fight even if you don't see victory as possible, because not to fight is to co-sign on the injustice. Wow. So that you have to get up. And even if you don't see a way to get all the way, you have to push mm. for as much as you can possibly get. And you're always dealing with the danger that partial reform mm-hmm. can become the block to more significant reform. Sure. Right? Because you get a little bit, and then people are able to say, hey, you know, we, <laughs> you know, we gave y'all this. That's right. And, and everybody's like, cool, you know. But in reality, the this, it isn't even taking us three quarters of the way to where we need to get to. Right. But then you also get into stuff, this is a little bit rambling, not as connected as the ideas I want to be. But then at an individual level, Tim, you get into this stuff about what is the difference between working to advance your brand Mm. versus working to advance the needs of a community? Because when you start talking to me about your brand, I'm like, you know, because then to me, you're going to make certain kinds of decisions, right? You're going to make the, and and then you may be able to talk yourself into, yeah, but if I advance my brand, then the community is going to be better. Well, maybe. Maybe. Maybe Maybe not. not. Right? (laughs) Depending upon what it takes to advance your brand. Or if everything is going to be based on how many many likes you get, how many hits you get, how many retweets you get, how many mentions you get. If that's what's going to determine what's going on, I'm not sure that that's going to advance the interests of a community, right? Right. And so I'm worried that we have a a generation of activists Mm -hmm. who are functioning in the milieu that exists, but that milieu may not be the one that leads us to a community being better off right? as opposed to those of us who are individually able to be better off. And so we always got to step back and think about it. How do my individual actions advance the interests of a community? And how do the things that I'm able to advance, how does that impact the effort to change the system Mm. more fundamentally, making the connections to your question? Doc, again, layers upon layers of this idea of what is our personal responsibility, but also how do, how do we show up in our leadership in a selfless way so that it is for the greater good? I mean, we have a responsibility, I think, to shake the tree. You have a responsibility to, you know, do what fuels your soul, to advance equity, to, you know, work towards equality. And I think that piece that you're talking about is really a reflection on how much change do you want? How much change do you really desire? Like, where is that authentic place of leadership lie, um, you know, it continues to be that question of in our quest 
to do real change? How do you remove self so that it is not just about you and your position and your brand? And I'm a brand manager, so I understand the power of, you know, having the right brand story and being able to lead. But when we talk about the real change that needs to happen, how do we remove our own personal agenda so that the greater good it is advanced in a way? And that might be the million dollar question, too. Yeah, but you know what? I'm, I'm really not talking about people removing their personal agenda all the way. In other words, and I don't know if London, like I tell young people all the time, I want you to do well, but you can also do good. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? In other words, if you can't pay your own bills, how you, you know what I mean? You ain't going to be able to be out there helping all anybody facts. do anything, right? So to a certain extent, you got to figure out what am I trying to get out of my life? What do I want my life to represent? But you want your life to represent at a number of different levels, right? And so if you want to try to change the life circumstances of people that you care about, you also have your own life circumstances have to be such that you're able to try to work to change other people's life circumstances, right? But the question is, Where's your limit? Mm -hmm. You know, like, what is it you're prepared to do and what is it you're prepared to give up in order to do what you say you want to do? Are you willing to give up a job that pays more money for a job that pays less money but that allows you to do X? Mm -hmm. Are you willing to put a job at risk by pushing forward on something that you know is going to be problematic? Those are are all individual decisions that we have to make when we say that we're out here trying to promote change. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm not trying to say to people, you shouldn't make money or you shouldn't get the best job possible. What I'm saying is, if you care about moving a community forward, let me explain it this way. I think that there's a difference between purpose and the method to get to purpose. And so... I want people to be committed to a purpose. Mm -hmm. And if you're committed to a purpose, you may be willing to give up on a particular arrangement that you thought was going to get you to purpose, right? The problem is when you become committed to a certain institutional arrangement, Mm -hmm. you may then become a protector of the status quo instead of being out there for purpose, right? So we all have to make that decision. We all have to make these personal decisions. Mm -hmm. But in making the personal decision, are you able to make the distinction between my job and my work? Because your work is what you're about. Your job is what allows you to pay your bills. If you're lucky, you will have alignment between your job and your work. But sometimes that, that alignment doesn't exist, but you can still do work even though your job Mm -hmm. doesn't connect to that work, right? But it's all the level of commitment that you have. And then once you get in a situation where there's alignment between your job and your work, are you willing to push the limits of that job in order to advance your work? Absolutely. Well, Doc, talk about that. I mean, you have, I understand that I have been purposed on this planet to be a change agent. I'm, I'm committed to that. It shows up in the kind of projects that I'm doing and the work that I'm doing. It's a reason for this podcast. Talk a little bit about when you discovered purpose and how that aligns to 
the good because there's some of us who have purpose and the purpose isn't necessarily connected to the greater good. But for you, this shows up really strongly. Yeah, I think it actually started when I was <laughs> in high school <laughs> and I got connected to the Urban League and Mr. Wesley Scott, uh, who was my you know mentor for, you know, forever. And then there were people like George Nash, Mr. and Mrs. Starnes, Kwame McDonald, Dr. Atkinson. So when my mother brought me up here from Louisiana, we first lived up on 11th Street, and then we moved into the Hillside Projects when they got built, right? And, and so clearly, we didn't have any money, but I was one of those young black people that People like Mr. Scott, all these people looked at and said, oh, you know, like, we, we going to work with him. <laughs> you know, he, you know, he, he, he got something. Where, you know, you know how people make those decisions about young people, right? And so I start like thinking, I need to come back and I need to give something to the community, just like these people gave something to me, mm. right? So I started thinking back then, okay, well, how can I do that? So when I went to college, the issue was, are you going to be a social worker or a teacher, right? So I majored in sociology and minored in education and ultimately went to get my master's degree in social work. But back then, there, there were two forms of social work, group work and casework. But there was this new kind of social work called community organization. Mm. In my mind back then, I saw casework and group work as helping people manage oppression. I wanted to figure out how to end oppression. So I thought if you could organize people so they could get power, then they could begin to influence and change, you know, their their lives, yes. right? It's sort of, you know, how I was thinking. And then ultimately when I went down to North Carolina and, and I got involved in the poverty program and I started organizing people to make change. I don't know if people know about this movie, The Best of Enemies, with uh, Taj, the woman from uh, Empire. She, oh, Taraji. Yeah, yes. Taraji, right. She played a woman named Ann Atwater. And what this movie was about was a black woman who established a relationship with the head of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I trained Ann Atwater mm. as an organizer, knocked on her door. And so you start, like, looking at, okay, I got this job. People say... This is a war on poverty. I thought people were actually interested in winning the war. And, and, and so the other thing I thought was I looked at my budget, and I, and I didn't see any position in there for poor people. And I was like, well, how come ain't no poor people getting out of this money? So then I you know, took the budget and changed it and, and, and hired people and stuff like that. So I'm using that only as an example to say at some point, somewhere along the line, I decided mm -hmm. that. I was going to devote my life to trying to change the life circumstances of poor black people in this country. Mm. And to try to create organizations, to try to create institutions, to try to create processes, you know, to try to make that happen. Absolutely. And so I don't know why that happened with me. I mean, I have to, like, attribute some of it to my mother and my grandmother, of course, mm -hmm. because of what they instilled in me. But it was also just the lesson that I got from the Mr. Scotts and the Mr. and Mrs. Starms of the world and sort of how they put into me. And so then I felt like I had a responsibility to do the same thing. And that is something that you are doing in the lives <laughs> of so many, as you alluded to, my son, London, that purpose of your life showing up in everything that you are doing. And I, I wonder if you can tell me what that sort, so that purpose that is in your life, the purpose to 
literally help change, at least this is how I see it showing up, that you are changing the trajectory of people that you encounter. So students, their families, this community, what gives you hope? You know what? I don't have this huge <laughs> reservoir of hope, honestly. That's right. The pessimism, but, I mean, yeah, yeah, realism. Yeah, but, but, you know, but when you look at London or, or you look at the fact that we now have seven or eight of our alumni that are working at our school, right? And I'm going to try to take them out to, <laughs> to dinner this week or next week because I don't see any Superman or Superwoman on the way mm. to rescue us, right? You know, I was in that documentary waiting for Superman. Ain't yes. going to be no Superman or Superwoman coming, right? We're going to need teachers. The only way I figure we're going to get them over the long haul is we're going to have to grow our own. We're going to have to start figuring out ways to get young people, when they're in the ninth grade, committed mm. to becoming teachers and then working with them, you know, through high school, into college. Like when, back in the day when I was in school, they had a thing called Future Teachers of America, where you start, like, you find those few kids Diamonds who want to be teachers, right? And yeah. you just, you start doing everything that you can to make sure that that happens. And then they, you, you bring them back. And, and so to me, what I'm hoping Dr. Howard Fuller Collegiate Academy will be, and I, I know, you know, with the leadership of Michelle and Rashida and Lauren and Rashad and Devona and, you, you know, all the, the dream people. The dream team. Yeah, yeah, who are, who, who are, <laughs> you know, who are pouring themselves into that school. The way that it, that institution has to work is that the people who go through it have to care about it, right? Okay. So that's why it's important to have Mark, and Amos, you know, two of our alumni, the first two to be on the board of trustees. Mm -hmm. You know, I see one day Mark or Amos being the chair of the board, right? That's that's how you build an institution that is a yes. part of a community, right? And then what that does is it, it advances the interests of the people that you're that you care for and that you're trying to work with, right? Mm -hmm. Because if they care enough to come back to the institution, then that means that that institution gave them something. You now are required to put something into that institution, right? So that if the black community is going to get beyond where it is, it's going to get there because of the strength of the institutions that we can build. Mm -hmm. And what gives me hope is that we have people who, A, understand that, B, believe in it, and three, are willing to work <laughs> to try to make it Do happen. You know, some of the people that I mentioned, and, and mm -hmm. you know many more, but you know the people that I'm talking about. You can see that level of commitment mm -hmm. to building an institution, you know, that, that cares about our kids. And you know how I feel about these kids, man. It's like you got to love them. <laughs> you know, like I talk about it, you know, Corey gets mad, but you got to love them even on days when they're not lovable. You know what I mean? Because, and it's not about they're our future. No, they're our present. They're our future. What are y'all talking about? No, they're, they're here right now. That's right. It, it's about them right now. It ain't about your future. It's about them right now. Yes. And if we don't deal with that as a reality, it gonna be no future, right? So I don't know. I just think you just got to approach this in a certain way. And everybody has their own style or this or that. But at the end of the day, the people who are committed to making real change, they're going to, as you say, show up each and every day to do what they to can. Do yeah. 
if this is something I have a passion for, this project right here, mm-hmm. I mean, I think about Rashad coming up to our school and volunteering to teach kids robotics. You know what I'm saying? Yes. That's the kind of thing <laughs> that I'm talking about yes. that's important. I love this. I love the conversation around hope and the conversation of the real work that you are doing in this community um, and beyond because the Dr. Fuller love is not just locally, but it is around this globe in many ways. So I just want to appreciate you for your life, for your purpose, for this greater understanding of equity. And I want to end on a, a light note in the realm of hope. What people don't always know about the Dr. Fuller is that in a past lifetime, <laughs> you served as a DJ. So yeah. I'm going to ask you, sir, to tell me what is currently on your playlist. Right. Okay. First of all, I got more than one playlist. It, it depends on what you're trying to do. You feel what I'm saying? And so when I was into iTunes, you know, like I, I have 26,000 songs on, right? on my external drive, uh, iTunes. But now I'm, I'm dealing with Spotify. Okay, so, so here's how I want you to, here I got to answer this question. So one playlist that I have, and just for, I'm going to give it a name, May, right? And you can decide. So on that playlist, I'm going to just give you five because there's 325 songs on that playlist. But you're There's my 325 mu- songs just on, on that one? playlist. Okay. okay, all right. So You're My Music by Brian uh, Culberson and, and Noel Gardeen. Share My Life by Kim. Collide, uh, which comes from the movie Queen and Slim. Mm. And it's uh, Tina Major 9 and Earth Gang. And then Hours and Hours by Manila Long and Trip by LMA. So okay. that's on the May playlist. All right, on the May playlist. Then there's another playlist called The Walk. And so... On that one is If This World Were Mine by Luther and Cheryl Lynn. Yes. Permission by Ro James. Mm. Dance for You by Beyonce. Say Yes by Floor Tree. And Sweet Afternoon by Avery Sunshine. And then I got one called Sizzling. Now you can. <laughs> I'm <laughs> but, scared to ask but, about no, that one, but no, okay. No, no, you, you don't ask, right? But so there's Sizzling one and Sizzling two, right? So, so it's old school versus new school. That's what it is. So Sizzling one is Let Me Be Closer by Teddy Pendergrass mm. and Juicy Fruit by Entume. Mm-hmm. And Slow Is the Way by the Isley Brothers and Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye and Freak Me by Silk. <laughs> Sizzling two <laughs> is Rocket. Okay. Uh, and by Beyonce. And then Naked by LMA. I'm only going to tell you ones I can tell you about, right? Late Night and Early Mornings by Marsha Ambrosia, mm-hmm. you know, who was the, you know, with Floor Tree. Yes. And I shouldn't mention this, but Cream by Dixon and Ooh Na Na by Sir and Masigo. And then I got one that's just duets, right? So on that one is Fire We Make by Alicia Keys and Maxwell. Fire Desire by Rick James and Tina Marie. I Who Have Nothing by Luther and Martha Walsh, Mm -hmm. Daydreaming by Lupe Fiasco and Jill Scott, and Your Precious Love by Randy Crawford and Al Jarreau. I have to put Al on there since we were in the eighth grade together. Okay. All right. But I just picked out out the ones that I thought that I could talk to you about. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know what I'm saying? But if you want the real list, just you know, just let me know. But you, but you get a sense. That's a of, private conversation. Yeah, you I get a you. sense of what I'm saying. Right? I do, clearly, <laughs> I need to step up my playlist game because the fact that you have five different ones. Yeah, but that's for... just the five that we're gonna talk about. I got three or four other playlists. Oh, I'm so, certain. Right, I am right, certain. Yeah. Well, Doc, let me just appreciate you again and again for your life, for who you have been to me and my family and my son, London, for folks that are listening that are interested in connecting to Dr. Fuller. I'm going to ask you to connect to Dr. Howard Fuller Collegiate Academy as a way to support this man and his life and mission and excited that you have joined us for On the Edge of Equity. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us on the Edge of Equity. Please join our email list at info at athenacommunicationsllc.com so you don't miss a single episode. The link is also in the show notes. You can also support the show by sharing it on social media with your personal and professional networks, suggesting guests and topics for us to spotlight, and engaging in crucial conversations about systems change.